0: Before we begin today's study, I suppose some explanation is in order. If you've looked at the bulletin and you see the sermon text and title from Matthew chapter 1, which I'll get to in a few moments, the title, I don't do that. I'll get to that a little bit later as well. But what this message essentially is about is what obedience looks like. We've been reading in Romans chapter 6, going through studies in the book of Romans, and our recent studies, Paul has been emphasizing that there are only two choices. Either obedience to God's law word or sin. To disobey or disregard God's standard of life leads to sin. If it's outright sinful to begin with. So it might be helpful for us to think about, well, what does exactly that look like? Whatever our own successes or failures in that ever, uh, endeavor. We have in scripture, and this is the focus of the message today, several examples, including the one we're going to study, very familiar to us, of course, from the Advent season. The example of Mary and Joseph. Now, I'm going to read in a few moments Matthew 1, 18 to 25, but I'll also be referring to Luke chapter 1. Some of you here today, Remember, something along these lines happening with your kids, if you have children, when they were much younger, maybe two or three years old. Say uh, they're sitting in the high chair in the kitchen and you're feeding them a little bowl of spaghetti, and you look over and you notice that your son or daughter is not eating, and you tell them, now you need to eat your spaghetti, and little Sally or Johnny looks at you and says no, and then picks up the bowl and throws it on the floor. Well, I hope that if that ever happened to you, or does happen, that your two-year-old or three-year-old would learn very quickly that daddy and mommy don't play that. We don't do that. And you may have learned very quickly from that experience, if it's happened to you, that obedience isn't necessarily something that comes naturally. As a matter of fact, because of our sinful nature, we find that we are wired not to obey, but to disobey not to conform to the truth and to God's law, but to rebel against it. And by the way, just to make sure the point is not missed, in God's divine providence and plan, it is the family. It is the home where we are to learn and be taught what obedience looks like. If we never learn to be obedient to our parents, not that we're perfect, but if we never learn the basics of obedience We're going to have a hard time learning to be obedient to God Almighty and other areas and other avenues. And that's why I'm saying, because this is true not just as we're growing up and learning to obey our parents, but as we grow older, we find ourselves learning that we have to conform to or obey other people in other situations, but most of all, God himself. In our scripture text today we find these two people who learned to overcome the natural tendency to disobey God and to follow his call to, disobe- to obedience. Excuse me. I should say, they didn't learn to overcome it on their own. By God's grace, they were empowered to do so. Mary and Joseph help us to frame a picture, if you will, of perfect obedience in its full context, and it reveals to us the difficulty and the blessing of devotion to God. So in both the Matthew and Luke accounts of Mary and Joseph, we have then this excellent illustration of what obedience looks like. Now, there are several points that I want to make to you about this as we think about this issue and study these words. And the first point has to do that we are to obey God's word in spite of our circumstances. Uh, In the case of Mary and Joseph, well, Mary in particular, to focus on her for a moment, she was from the town of Nazareth, a small, obscure village that had much, much nothing to offer compared to, say, Rome or Cairo or Jerusalem. It was a dull, monotonous dwelling place where nothing exciting ever occurred. Now, we know from history, although the New Testament I don't think mentions it, but if you ever travel to the Holy Land, you generally will go to Nazareth. And you will also find uh, a trip to a place about 15 or 20 minutes away from Nazareth called Sepphoris. Now, we know that in the times of Jesus and Mary and Joseph, Sepphoris was a very, very busy, prosperous town. It was a focus of of a Roman government seat, not a major one. But it it was a much more bustling place compared to Nazareth. There's some speculation that Jesus himself visited there. Anybody who lived lived in Nazareth in the time probably would have. We don't know that for sure, but it's a reasonable supposition. Mary lived in Nazareth. We have no indication of her personal appearance that would set her apart from any other young girl in that city. To the human eye, she was probably just an ordinary-looking young teenage girl. But in the plan of God... She was an extraordinary person whom he chose to favor. The angel Gabriel, according to the account, greets her as one who is highly favored, meaning she has been given grace. God's grace is always a result of his initiative, not our merit, certainly not hers. Mary, having received God's grace and promise, embraced the consequence. Because there would be consequences. Mary heard from the angel Gabriel what would soon happen. And she would face difficulties, conflict, but she obeyed in spite of those things. I mean, after all, who in the world would believe such a thing as a virgin birth? Mary apparently considered it quite impossible, and reasonably so, but listen to what Gabriel, the angel of God, told her in Luke 137. For with God, nothing will be, nothing is impossible. I mean, don't we find ourselves in similar circumstances on occasion? Circumstances that require obedience, even when we don't fully understand the details. We have to accept the fact that at the heart of obedience is a faith that God can make the impossible possible. Impossible possibilities. Mary didn't demand an explanation. She didn't complain to God's messenger that, you know, I really don't have sufficient information to say whether I'll go along with it. She didn't say anything like that. Rather, we hear in Luke 138, she said, let it be to me according to your word. Now, for us as Christians, obedience is not an option that depends on our circumstances. It is a duty in spite of the circumstances. You know, uh, you will see. Places where, say, for example, there are restrictions on parking. Uh, maybe the sign says private property, no unauthorized parking. The sign does not say private property, no unauthorized parking, unless there's nobody here. It doesn't say that. Uh, "Handicap parking only, unless there's nobody parked here. It doesn't say that. We are to obey God despite the circumstances. You know, if we obey only... When we want to or believe only what is understandable all the time, we do not trust God. We are only trusting ourselves. We are called to obey and trust the word of God even when we cannot see the hand of God active. And that leads me then to something I've already mentioned. We not only obey in terms of the circumstances, but also in terms of conflict. Now here's where I'm going to read the Matthew text of Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And I'm reading this from the English Standard Version. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, that is, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that is, the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, that is, God with us. For when Joseph, or when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Notice, he obeyed. He did as he was commanded by God. He took his wife, but he knew her not. That is, he did not have physical relations with her until she had given birth to a son and called his name Yeshua, that is, Jesus. So, it is true that circumstances can make obedience disconcerting and conflict can make it painful. But the key thing to notice here is that when Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant, that news must have been extremely painful for him. I mean, he assumed the worst. How could he not? I mean, here's the woman he's engaged to. She's a young woman, which anybody would assume she was a virgin. But now she's found to be with child. His first default position is she's been unfaithful. Now, you see, under Talmudic law and some aspects of God's law, the engagement period, the betrothal, was considered Legally binding, almost like the marriage itself. Now, of course, during the engagement period, the couple did not live together or have a physical relationship. But for all intents and purposes, under the law, they were as good as Mary. And so legally, Joseph had two options. You know, he could divorce Mary publicly and shame her in a court of justice. Or he could divorce her in a private setting, saving her from public humiliation. Listen again to Matthew 119 from Uh, a more paraphrased translation. Her husband Joseph was an honorable man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the marriage engagement with her quietly. So he knew that legally he could hurt her, he could destroy her for life, and no one would think the less of him for having done it. But he was, as we say, better than that, and he erred on the side of compassion. But before Joseph could act on this inclination, the angel of the Lord informs him that Mary is pregnant by means of the Holy Ghost and that he should, he must take her as his wife and he obeys the messenger of the Lord in the midst of what I am sure was a deep, deep inner conflict. And so that's another thing about obeying in terms of conflict. Obedience in that context is rarely easy or convenient. Conflict and struggle and agony are frequently present. Obedience, my friends, is not some formula dictated by the law. It is an attitude in the will and the mind of a person who says, by God's grace, I am determined to obey and follow the Lord. Joseph's obedience really is an inspirational testimony to anyone who has experienced the distress of conflict. His actions remind us that obedience doesn't afford us the luxury of saying, no, I'm just going to be neutral in this situation. No, no. Last week, uh, my wife and I, or week before last, we were watching a movie online or on on TV about the life of C.S. Lewis, uh, a biopic, as they call it, titled The Most Reluctant Convert. I commend it to you if you've never seen it. And it reminded me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago. He's certainly not the only Christian writer who said such a thing. But here is what he said. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. End of quote. And so then, because righteousness seems difficult and selfishness seems like the easy path, you're going to have this challenge. You're going to have that conflict in obeying God and not disobey, But you see, God often uses conflict to our benefit, doesn't he? For Joseph, obedience meant yielding his opinions and his desires to the will of God. Um, I'm sort of on a roll here today for movies. How many of you have seen the film Chariots of Fire? I mean, it's been 20, 30 years, I think, since that movie came out, maybe longer. It's another biopic of the great Scottish Olympic runner Eric Little, who was a very dedicated Christian. That's brought out, I think, reasonably well in that epic motion picture. He won the gold medal for Scotland and Great Britain in the Olympics of, I was at 1930 or whatever it was. But he went from there, from that Olympic glory, to become an unknown missionary in China. He died as a martyr in a prison camp in China during World War II. That man understood the issues of obedience in the face of conflict. Eric Little wrote many letters, and I think he even left a diary, and one of the things he said was this, and I'm quoting him, obedience to God's will is the secret of spiritual knowledge and insight. It is not willingness to know, but willingness to do God's will that brings certainty. End of quote. My friends, we are called to obey in spite of the circumstances. We are called to obey God's word. We are called to obey the walk to walk the path of holiness and righteousness according to God's law in spite of the conflict it may create. And then thirdly and finally, and I think this is the really big, all of these are big ticket issues, but I think this is the really big one today. We are called to obey in spite of our culture. Now, you know, um, if I was sharing this message with you, instead of the year 2023, but 1963 or 1953 or earlier, I wouldn't say that so much, not to say that at least in these United States we had a perfectly Christian culture, but for those of us who can remember back that far, uh, we have to acknowledge that our society and our culture here were much more conforming to the basic principles of the Ten Commandments than they are today for sure. That doesn't mean the culture was completely Christian by any means, but the challenges were more subtle, much less threatening than they are today. Now, Mary and Joseph probably believed that the culture in which they lived wouldn't embrace the idea that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And they were right. If Mary and Joseph had waited, though, for society to approve their faith, well, they never would have taken the first step toward obedience. And if they had depended on the approval of the religious priests and the social elite of their society and their culture, they would have never traveled that road to Bethlehem. Somebody recently wrote a sad but certain commentary on some individuals today is that they raise the flag of conviction only after they've determined the prevailing wind of cultural opinion. Another way of saying that is that there are some people, and, you know, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that our state house down in Columbia is full of people like this, as is uh, our halls of Congress uh, in Washington, D.C., People who lick their finger and put it up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing, and that's the direction they'll go. They're in no conviction. They're phony. They aren't willing to make a stand for God's truth. Let me tell you about someone who did. Someone you probably either never heard of or you've long since forgotten about. How many of you know that back in 1963, whether you were there or you read about it, in the year 1963, the United States Supreme Court uh, legislated that prayer in public schools would be banned and is against the law from that day forward. Up to that point, many of us can remember, I, You know, even after 1963, it was not uncommon here in the South. Prayer was a common thing in public schools. But not after 1963. It became less and less common to we wind up where we are today with Drag Queen Story Hour. What many people don't know is that that case was premised upon the actions of a woman by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare, probably the most notorious atheist of the 20th century. I can tell you personally, she was a rather gruff, strange woman. I actually met her uh, years before I went to seminary. I worked at a newspaper in North Carolina, and we had a parking lot that was adjacent to the convention center in the city where uh, I worked and where I lived. Uh, It wasn't a big parking lot, and the convention center was not a huge one. But I happened to notice, as I was going out to my car to go out and do some calls, I looked across the street, and there in the convention center parking lot, I saw this RV vehicle, and walking around the front of it was no less than Madeline Murray O'Hare, the famous atheist. Now, you might think, well, what in the world was she doing there? At that particular time, I forgot what year it was, maybe 1980, 79, somewhere in there, Madeline Mary O'Hare was touring the country, holding debates on atheism versus Christianity with a guy who called himself the Chaplain of Bourbon Street. I forgot what his name was, but I, I think they had entered into some agreement between them to go do this and make some money for themselves. Well, anyway, that's why she was there. They were having this at that convention center, and there she was in the parking lot, and I thought, well, hey, <laughs> I'll never get a chance like this again. So I zoomed over there in my car, and I ran up to her, and I... Knocked on the door of the RV she'd gone in by then, and I told her who I was. I worked at this newspaper across the street, and I'd been very interested in her career, and could I talk to her for a moment? She invited me in. Uh, you could tell she was a pretty rough customer. But inside the RV was a young man, I'd say in his 20s or 30s, and an older man, and she introduced me to both of them, and one of them was her son. And I said, oh, is this uh, William Murray? Oh, no, 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 she said. Not him. He's not a part of my family anymore. You see, William Murray is the son of the atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare, upon whom the case that threw out prayer in the public schools was premised. He grew up in that home with her as her son, her firstborn son. He lived his adolescence in the presence of godlessness and religious oppression. He admitted many years later that the only time he heard the word God in that household was when his mother was using it in a curse word phrase was 14 years old when that legal action was brought on his behalf, and his mother's behalf. However, about 20 years later, when he was 33, he rejected quite publicly the atheism of his mother, and the Lord gave him faith to believe in Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the circumstance and the conflict, and in his case, the culture in his family that he had to deal with? Despite an environment that fostered doubt and cynicism and bitterness and strife, that man obeyed the Lord. Mary and Joseph submitted to God's purpose and accepted the embarrassment from a culture that would spread despicable rumors. I think we can reasonably guess that when the marriage proceeded and the the, uh, nuptials were held, that there were plenty of people around them who were eagerly counting the months from the time they got married to the time she gave birth. They no doubt, Mary and Joseph, they no doubt noticed the stares and overheard the whispers. and They learned that obedience is a profound cultural battle concerning people's thoughts and actions as opposed to God's law word. Mary and Joseph were willing to move against the current of their society and their culture in order to honor and obey God's law word. Let me close this study on what obedience looks like by sharing with you a story that a man wrote of his time in seminary. Now, I think this guy was uh, a Methodist because he references uh, a bishop who made assignments. He was Methodist or Episcopal. I think he was Methodist. And I'm just going to quote the article here. He says, a seminary student, he knew a young man who received an appointment from his bishop that he did not feel the placement exactly suited his abilities. In other words, you're you're graduating from seminary this year. As your bishop, I'm assigning you to this church over here in this place. And the young man didn't like the assignment at all. And the man who wrote this article said, I overheard him complaining about it to another student And he said, that other student said this. He said, you know, the world is a better place because the great artist Michelangelo did not say to the Pope, I don't do ceilings. For any who need the explanation, we would have never gotten the Sistine Chapel, one of the great works of art of all time, if that had been Michelangelo's attitude. Now, the man telling this, who overheard this conversation, he said, that stopped me dead in my tracks. And he said, I had to admit he was right. He said, if you and I are going to be faithful to the ministry God is calling us to, and let me just insert here, for us right now, that ministry is the ministry of obedience to his law and his word. If we're going to be faithful to that, he said, we'd better understand what that boy said, what that seminary student said. And he said, I reflected on the attitudes of key people throughout Scripture and in the history of the Christian church. He said, You know, the world's a better place because a German monk named Martin Luther did not say, I don't do doors. It's a better place because a Frenchman named John Calvin didn't say, I don't lead churches in Geneva. The world's a better place because Moses did not say, I don't do pharaohs or mass migrations. The world's a better place because Noah didn't say, I don't do arks or animals. Rahab didn't say, I don't hang enemy spies. The world's a better place because Ruth didn't say, I don't do mothers-in-law. The world's a better place because David didn't say, I don't do giants. Peter didn't say, I don't do Gentiles. John the baptizer didn't say, I don't do deserts. It's a better place because Mary didn't say, I don't do virgin births. Paul didn't say, I don't do a lot of correspondence. Mary Magdalene didn't say, sorry, I don't do feet. And finally, the world is a much better place because Jesus didn't say, I don't do crosses. And the world will be a better place only if you and I don't say, I don't do that. In whatever area life God is calling you to obey, that's where you're going to have the rubber meet the road. So what area is that for you today? Where is it the Lord is calling you or me to obedience? Perhaps there's a bad habit that we need to break. Maybe there's a person that we've had conflict with and God is calling us to reconciliation. Possibly, you know, uh, you or I, we've been disobedient to the conviction of the Holy Spirit being brought upon us concerning being more diligent in Bible study or church attendance or whatever it may be. Perhaps today is the day that you, that I, that we say to God, there is nothing I won't do for you, O Lord. And by his grace, may we be empowered to stand firm on that conviction. Let us pray.